Last Sunday afternoon after the service, I had a few friends over in my house, and I asked them if any of them knew what it was that in Hebrews chapter 11, Joseph is commended for. And um, we know Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. God, there by the author of the book of Hebrews, lists a whole lot of people who have demonstrated faith in some remarkable ways. And Joseph is listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Don't look there yet. Don't look there yet. We're getting there. It's verse 22. I'll give you the sheet. It's right there. Hebrews 11, 22. And you know what happened when I asked this small group of friends? These are folks that, that know their Bible. And, um, you know, not one of them could actually answer. I received some pretty brave guesses. They guessed things that pertain to Moses, who comes after Joseph. But no one could remember what actually took place in Joseph's life that was there noted in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, um, the idea of what's mentioned in Hebrews 11 kind of leaves us scratching our heads and saying, so why was that so important that that would be the one thing? Joseph's only noted for one thing in Hebrews chapter 11. Why was it so important that the author of the book of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would pull this one thing from Joseph's life to highlight in that hall of faith from such a rich and expansive life as his was? So we, we could ask some interesting questions. We could say, well, probably that would be noted there would be the fact that Joseph believed and received promises. He believed those dreams that God gave him right through the thick and thin of 22 years of slavery and prison, of separation and loneliness. But that's not what God comments on in Hebrews chapter 11. We could say, well, maybe it was that he kept his eyes on God when a seductive woman attempted to step between him and his purpose and his God. He didn't yield to the passions of his flesh when he was far from home, and no one would ever know. But that's not what's noted in Hebrews chapter 11. We can say, well, okay, it was probably that he did his work faithfully even when he was in prison. He wasn't just serving the warden of the prison, but he was serving God. And you'll remember in Genesis chapter 39 it says, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever was done there, he did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. He really, you know, he, he did his work faithfully. But that's not what's noted in Hebrews chapter 11. We say, well, okay, all right, this could be it. Uh, maybe it was that he didn't give up on God when everyone else failed him and even forgot him that he trusted God alone. But that's not what's noted in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, maybe it was that, that he boasted in his invisible king when he faced the most powerful sovereign on earth, the Pharaoh. And he dared to say to Pharaoh, it is not in me to interpret your dream. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He didn't give up. He boasted in God. But those aren't the things that were noted in Hebrews chapter 11, maybe it was that he kept his head when the glitter of riches and power could have turned his eyes from God as they had turned the eyes of many others, but that wasn't what was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. It could be perhaps that, that he waited for God to work in his own good time to remember how he waited for his brothers even when they came and he could have said things, he could have done things, he could have all during those years gone down to home, but he never went. But 
that's not the waiting side was not what was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We could say, well, perhaps it was really that he forgave his undeserving brothers, that he comforted them when they should have been the ones to comfort him, that he drew near to these people who had hurt him more than anyone else ever had, that he forgave his brothers. That would be probably one of my best guesses. But that's not what's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as being the signal of his faith. It took faith to do all of these things, but not one of them is the specific note that is given in Hebrews chapter 11 about the faith of Joseph. We could say, okay, well, we've got to get here somehow. How about if we, maybe he bore his honor with humility and grace when his brothers bowed down to him, that he didn't say, I told you so. So he bore honor with humility, but that's not what's mentioned. Maybe it was that he wasn't ashamed to be associated with his people who were detestable to the sophisticates of his society, the people that were in his circles, but that's not what's mentioned in Hebrews 11. Maybe it's that he carried out his father's final wishes and accorded him really nearly kingly honors we saw last week, even though he was just a sojourning tribal chieftain and a foreigner in a land not his own. But that's not what's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me show you what it is. Just one thing. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's kind of underwhelming. Really? Out of the whole life of Joseph, this is all that the author of the book of Hebrews and the great hall of faith has to say about him? So he, at the end of his life, made mention of the fact that the exodus was coming, and he told the Israelites what to do with his bones. It doesn't sound very significant. Why would that matter? Who cares? How does that demonstrate faith? And that's what I want to show you this morning. Turn, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, and we're looking at verses 22 through 26 this morning. Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26. We're at that point, as you'll remember if you were here last week, that Jacob has died. And the brothers come bowing and cringing to Joseph and say, And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept, it says, when they spoke to him. And then in verse 18 of chapter 50, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive to, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph assured them that they didn't need to be afraid that he was not in God's place. They had, in fact, meant evil to him. And what they did really was painful to him. But that God meant it for good, right through the middle of Joseph's personal sufferings. And God has worked for good in this story. He's taken Joseph through many evils to arrive at the place where God's people are blessed with great good. He put Joseph, really, in a position to be able to sustain and care for and provide for his entire family, but through suffering. 
So he comforted his brothers and spoke kindly to them. And now, as we come to Genesis chapter 50, verse 22, the years have really been rolling on. Joseph has been providing and caring for his brothers and for their children and for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren, all of them benefiting from the overflow of God's kindness and grace through the man they once hated. They were sustained by Joseph for all these years. And now we're 54 years after Genesis 50, 21. 54 years later, Joseph is now very old. In fact, he's 110 years old. Interesting note that in ancient Egypt, and I don't know why, but 110 was considered the perfect age to die. I didn't know there was a perfect age to die, but that's what the ancient Egyptians thought. 110 was the perfect age to die. Joseph has arrived at that remarkable number, 110. And here we read verse 22 of chapter 50 of the book of Genesis. So Joseph, it says, remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. We kind of want to sigh and say, well, I guess that's it. It was a good story while it lasted. It was a nice long story. At least we got to learn some important lessons from Joseph about what it means to live life with God in the center of our view. It was good while it lasted, but the end is not really the end. The end in Joseph's story is the opening of an entire new chapter in the story of God's grace and his eternal plan of redemption. Joseph's crowning faith, remember Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph's crowning faith was really in seeing beyond the end of life itself, past death, past his final breath, past everything he'd ever known in this world, straight into the realm of the invisible I want to show you what Joseph's life looked like in history to help us understand why this is so significant and important. Up until Joseph was 17, he lived in his father's house, as you'll remember, and from birth to slavery, that's about the length of the line of his life, 17 years. And then from birth to the fulfillment of the dreams that he had. You'll remember the dreams. The brothers are bowing down. Father and mother are bowing down. From the time of his birth to the fulfillment of the dreams, 
when the brothers came and bowed and Jacob entered Egypt, 39 years. So 22 years difference between those two, 22 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And then from his birth to his death, 110. We just read that he died at 110 years of age. So now we have between the fulfillment of the promise when Jacob enters the land until Joseph's death, 71 years. 71 years in which he's caring for, providing for his brothers, taking care of their needs, meeting them with every kind of supply. 71 years. But I want you to see one more line. That's how long it was to the Exodus. So take, if you would, just that discrepancy, the difference between Joseph is 17 to 39, 22 years, and now look at how far it is to the Exodus. Joseph's faith was not just 22-year-long faith. Faith waiting while he was there, while he was present, while it was still possible for God to do something in his own experience. He waited 391 years, in a sense, after his death. It was 430 years from the time that Jacob and his family came to Egypt. Take that line, the first gold line there, birth to fulfillment at 39. 430 years from the end of that line until the children of Israel finally exited Egypt under the hand of an unwilling leader by the name of Moses. 22 years of preparation, really. 22 years of preparation for a faith that could see far beyond his own last breath. It was this faith that God had been building and building through Joseph. And it's this faith that's then celebrated in Hebrews chapter 11 as the single thing that that author pulled out of Joseph's life to demonstrate what faith is really about. Faith to see far beyond. What you'll die for tells a whole lot about what you're living for. In the case of Joseph, it was what was on his mind as he prepared to die that shows us what he was really living for, because he was looking for a time beyond his time, a time when the people he had called into Egypt would be called back out of Egypt by God. Stephen Covey, a best-selling secular author, uh, wrote a very famous book. It sold about 25 million copies. It's called, and you've maybe read it, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In this book, he urges his readers to picture attending a funeral in order to clarify what's really important in life. He says this, and I quote, As you walk down to the front of the room, you look inside the casket, Covey says. You suddenly come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral. All these people that have gathered have come to remember you. Now, Covey urges, again quoting, think deeply. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you and your life? What kind of a husband, wife, father, or mother would you like their words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or cousin? What kind of friend? What kind of working associate? I've done that kind of thing. But can I just tell you, that's not deep enough. 
at the end of the day, how much lasting value is there in the impressions you leave on those closest to you? Unless those marks made in their lives are the marks of the indelible, the indelible marks of God by his work through you. Who really cares in the great eternal sense of things what people thought about me or think about you? It's an interesting idea. It's clarifying in the sense that it tells us a little bit about our perspective, our direction, where we're going, but it's not enough. What does God think? And how have the marks that I have made in the lives of my fellow travelers on this journey been the marks of God? So we, we see Joseph's life expressing to us that it's not just enough to have cared for people during his life, that those people could step back as his brothers surely could at the end of those 71 years of care under the hand of Joseph and say, Joseph was a, a good man, Joseph was a forgiving man, Joseph was a kind man, Joseph met us at our personal need, unless, unless his influence actually advanced the kingdom toward a day when Joseph's name might fade in their memory, but the name of God would go on and on and on. Unless there would be a bright eternal day when Joseph's labors now growing insignificant under the dust of time are rewarded by the king of kings, who is his father. For us, unless we can look forward to the time when our God will again come, and he will say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. If you're looking back over at Hebrews 11, and you can keep your fingers there, because we're going to be going back and forth a little this morning, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 39 after listing all of the people who have been identified as people of faith, people who looked beyond the pale of this world into the great realities of the next, the summary is in 39 and 40 of chapter 11. It says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Did you get that? These people did not receive what was promised. Yeah, that's what it's saying. So, so these people who are here listed never actually experienced the complete fulfillment of all that was promised by God. Their faith had to go beyond what they could see. Their faith had to go beyond what their life contained. So really, in a sense... These people were looking for things like a city whose builder is God. They were looking for a permanent home, you'll find earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. They were looking for a nation for God. But they weren't just looking for those things. They were looking for a son who would bruise the serpent's head, taking us all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 15 and that first promise, the Proto-Evangelium, which follows the fall of man and God's great redemptive promise, they were looking to the redemption, not just to a city, not just to a permanent home, not just to a nation, but to the ultimate end of all of those things, to the son who would bruise the serpent's head, to a man who would not just give the law as Moses would hereafter, Joseph, 
but to the one who would be able to keep the law and impart the righteousness that he had to those who were his. They were looking to a deliverer who would lead his people not just out of Egypt, but out of bondage forever and into the very liberty of the children of God. They were looking beyond their life, way beyond their life, to those great realities that were in their life yet to come. These all, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Joseph was among those. He did not receive the entire fulfillment of all that was promised. Now, he knew that God would keep his promises, right? 22 years he'd waited in slavery and suffering and affliction and bondage. He'd waited and waited and waited when everything seemed against him and it seemed that all, there was no possibility that God could ever come through. How could God come through for a guy who is considered dead, who is lost in the land of Egypt and forgotten? How could God come through? But he had. And in those 22 years, Joseph grew to trust that God could do things that looked utterly impossible. Now here at the end of his life, 110, he says, 22 years is not too long to wait for God. I'm prepared to wait 391. And beyond those 391, I'm prepared to wait for the one who would really fulfill all of those promises in their greatest reality. I'm waiting for Jesus. When Joseph announced the coming exodus of the people of God, he asserted his confidence that the plan of God would not die with him. That the redemptive purpose of God would succeed. That what God said he would do, he would accomplish. He fastened, really, all his hopes on one great coming reality. He set his sights on the coming of the promised one and trusting in him alone, Joseph was actually ready to die. This past July, uh, I had a customer walk into the office where I work and I probably asked him that inane American question that we ask people when we meet them, how are you? And he came back with this shocking answer. He said, today is better than yesterday. I probably said, huh? <laughs> I'm not sure what I said, but I do know what he said next. Today is better than yesterday. I'm one day closer to dying, and heaven is better than earth. When the promise is in view, what could be better than experiencing the fulfillment of it? God had prepared Joseph through those 22 years of waiting to receive the promise of dominion with humility and grace. And now Joseph was ready to play his part as we've watched in the redemptive plan of God to forgive his brothers, to protect and provide for them so that they might grow into the nation of promise. And now 71 years later, Joseph is ready for the really long haul. He's looking for the one from his great-grandfather Abraham's line who would bless all nations. After all, the promised nation of Israel was never just about a select group of individuals. They were that. But they were selected for a purpose. They were selected to be the root from which Messiah would spring. Track back with me to Genesis chapter 22. Let me read it to you and let you listen to what the promise really was as Abraham stands on Mount Moriah, having just come to the very brink of offering up his own son, 
Isaac on the altar. God affirms to him his promise from Genesis chapter 15, and he uses these words to do it. By myself I have sworn, says God, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and, listen, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We say, well, okay, but how does that really play out? Let me show you. Because Paul argues that it plays out like this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, Paul, Paul writing, this is not me, this is Paul writing, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The Abrahamic covenant was connected all the way to Jesus. That's Paul's argument from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. So when Abraham received the promise in Genesis chapter 22, there on the top of Mount Moriah, it was a promise of Jesus to come. And Joseph, identifying with that promise to his predecessor, looks beyond his lifetime, way beyond his lifetime, to the Exodus, and beyond the Exodus, to the one who was to come. Joseph centered all his hopes as he lay prepared to die on Jesus. We really are headed for a glorious future in the presence of God as the people of God because God has fulfilled his redemptive plan for us in Jesus. And he used men like Joseph to bring that plan to pass. Men who faithfully work together with God for purposes much greater than their own individual personal histories. Each of them were really a single link in a long chain of redemption, each link important, but no link the sum. Their significance, their purpose was bigger than life. Their purpose was a connection link by link by link across the generations and down through history to the one great link, the only link who could unite God to his people forever, to the promised offspring to the ultimate deliverer, to Jesus. Our life really isn't just about us. We do know the joy and confidence of, that the death of those who believe in Jesus means instant personal audience with the invisible God, the God we've not seen but loved through all the days of our journey home. But we're also, in an amazing and significant way, united with God's people down through the centuries in working out together with God his great plan to redeem. We have a purpose, a purpose that's bigger than life. So looking at it from that perspective, it's little wonder then that in Hebrews 11, the author zooms in on this one spectacular evidence of Joseph's long-haul faith, his faith that took him all the way from the covenant of Abraham and before the covenant of Abraham to the covenant in the Garden of Eden. 
to the fulfillment of the covenant in Jesus. Joseph's faith could be no better summarized than verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 11 says, and let me read it for you again, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So I wonder if you know what happened next in the story of God's redemption through Joseph. Look over to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 and in verse 6 we read the next connection to Joseph in the Bible. We aren't going to study the whole book of Exodus today. Please don't worry. I just want to show you where we're going, where Joseph's next step was. You remember that in chapter 50 we just read he died. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Exodus, then Joseph died, it says again, and all his brothers and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And then you read of the oppression of the people of God, just as had been promised to Abraham long, long centuries before. But God's redemptive plan is on track. The people of God would suffer. And as Joseph prepared to die, his people needed to hear one more time from the lips of a national hero, as it were, the assurance that God's promise was still true, even though they would suffer. Even though it would be long centuries of suffering. And Joseph says, I'm willing to stake my reputation and future on the certainty of that promise coming true. It's a long time, 391 years. It was in 1691 that the first African slaves were brought to America. If, as they had stepped out on American soil, someone had said, you will be, you'll make a great exodus from America in 391 years, do you know how long it would be when they would have just departed? Eight years ago, in 2010. Okay, 1691 to 2010. That's how long it would be. Or it would be a little like if George Washington had told our countrymen to take his bones to England in 391 years from the time he died in 1799. We'd still have to wait another 172 years to take him to England. Guys, that's a long time. We don't even have minds that are big enough to comprehend how long this is. The people that Joseph is here saying goodbye to needed to know God will fulfill his promise though it looks like it will never come. Interesting, we hear resonance of that in the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter as people, scoffers, Peter calls them, say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, maybe including Joseph, all things continue as they are from the beginning of creation. Everything just keeps going on just like it is. Where's the promise of his coming? How long do you think that we're going to wait and just pretend? Joseph tells his people, the word that we need to hear today, but he will come. God will surely visit his people, and he will come. Joseph appears again in the story in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 19. As the people of God make a roundabout exit from Egypt, it says, 
quoting here, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. And then we find all the way over in the end of the book of Joshua that Joseph's name appears one more time. The people of God have been through the battles of the land of Canaan, and they've arrived at Shechem. Shechem, where Jacob had bought the land on which he pitched his tent, and he built an altar there, and he called the altar El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel, the mighty God of Israel. I want you to note that this is one of the only pieces of land that Jacob ever owned. He actually, in this place, in Shechem, he bought the land that he pitched his tent on, and he there made a home for a time as a sojourner in the land of Shechem. It was this Shechem where Joseph's brothers, Simeon and Levi, you'll remember, slaughtered the people of the land for the offense against their sister Dinah. It was this Shechem where Jacob told his household later on, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. It was here at this Shechem that the people of God are gathered again. And Joshua tells them, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And then he said, listen to what he says in verse 23 of chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. Listen to what he says. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Just like Jacob had said centuries before. So Joshua now repeats and says, if you will be God's people, then do this one thing. Put away the foreign gods from among you. The people insist, we'll be God's people. And I assume at that point then that they put away their foreign gods. The Lord, our God, we will serve, they said. His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, the tree, the oak tree probably, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Verse 32, as for the bones of Joseph, Yeah, the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 400 pieces of money. It became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. Here at this place where the covenant was renewed, here at this place where the foreign gods were put away, here at this place where Jacob made... His, one of his most significant homes along his sojourning here 
Joseph's mummy is finally laid to rest. It had wandered with them through the wilderness for 40 years. It had been with them at the Battle of Jericho. It had been with them at Ai as they were defeated. It had been with them through all the remaining battles of the conquest of the land. And here Joseph is laid to his final, richly deserved rest. But no, this is really not Joseph's final rest. For one day, those dry bones will leap from the ground in Shechem. They will leap to meet the God he saw and loved in that great resurrection. And we will join him and the host of those who, like him, saw beyond the world of the visible things to the realm of the invisible God. In new bodies, more glorious than anything we can imagine, we will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with Joseph in the kingdom of heaven, and we will feast together at the table of God forever. Until then, what are you living for that's bigger than life? It's good to have plans for this life. It's good to know what you think matters. But can I just tell you that if you're not living for something bigger than life, you're not living big enough? I think that's what Joseph is telling us. Why would the author of Hebrews choose this to identify his faith because it was a faith that was bigger than life. It was a faith that spanned the centuries looking to the Exodus and beyond the Exodus, the one who had come, the great deliverer, the Lord Jesus himself. In what ways are we ready to sacrifice personal satisfaction in this life in order to connect to the redemptive plan of God for his people? How are we identifying with the people of God? We're a challenging lot, really. We have our strange anomalies and our irritating habits, and the closer that we get to each other, the more we realize how irritating and challenging we are, but, but we are a part of the pillar and ground of truth. We are. The church is a pillar and ground of the truth. How do our priorities reflect that we are actually brothers and sisters, that we're sons and daughters of the great king, and that we're going to live together forever. And then how are we telling the truth about God to the next generation? How long will it be before Jesus comes? Don't answer, because if you do, you're probably wrong. We don't know exactly how long it will be before Jesus comes but we can say this, no matter what the scoffers say, he will come. How are you telling the next generation that God is trustworthy? How is your life demonstrating that he is worthy to be counted on when everything looks wrong and dark, when even at the end of our lives, we can say to those following us, believe him because he will come through. This is our God are we demonstrating that we're believing him by banking everything on him and forsaking everything else? How are we telling the next generation the truth about God? So the end for Joseph, in one sense, is really not the end. 
It's a new and unimaginably beautiful beginning of a story of mercy and grace and glory that will go on forever. In, Genesis, in Psalm chapter 48, the psalmist writes, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation, this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. And so, as we close the story of Joseph, it's really just the opening of a whole new chapter in the same story of the great God Joseph served.